Bem-vindos to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. As always, this is your host Pedro Abreu, and in this episode, we have a very, very deep conversation with Jan de Malkius. In the first half of this episode, he will be introducing himself and all the cool research he has done with Idris hardware and many different kinds of very interesting type systems such as session types, quantitative types, graded types, and so on. The second half, we will be talking about all the different kinds of problems that PL Academia has been going through lately and what we as a community can do to address those issues. There is actually so much to talk about all this that we had to split this episode in two. So hopefully next week I'll be able to release the second part of this conversation where we get more in depth about the technicalities of his research. Now, before we start the episode, I have exciting news. We now have a Discord server. That's right. In this Discord server, we can now have a closer engagement with you guys, our beloved listener. We can now discuss the content of the episode, share knowledge, or, you know, just hang out and talk. I don't know. The cool thing about this Discord is that now our patrons will be able to send questions to our future guests. So, for example, late August, I'm already scheduled to interview Leo Demora, the creator of Z3 and Lean. And so our subscribers can have exclusive access to send me their questions that they would like to hear from Leo. So if you want to be part of this exclusive family that we are creating, go to our website, typetheoryforall.com, and subscribe to our Discord server. If you want to be even more exclusive, don't forget to donate to our Ko-Fi and become a Patreon. So now let's get into this episode. All right. Welcome, everyone, to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. Let's hope that I'm not going to butcher his name too much today, but with me here, I have Ian Demank. Oh, I think I pushed it a little bit. Well, welcome to the show, Ian. Hello, thank you for having me, Pedro. And I was, do you so wanna, I'll do the, yeah, I'll do correct that. me. Yeah, well, I'm not going to correct you. That was a nice effort. You know, we've practiced this a few times before we started recording, right? So my name is Ian Demank Hughes. I am Dutch Welsh, but raised in Scotland. So there's a lot of interesting things with my name and who can say it right, and who can say it wrong. And if you're Dutch, you can say pretty much 90% of my name right, but part of my last name wrong. And if you're British, well, just the last bit's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, in this always, case... Mm-hmm, go on. It's, it's always just a nice icebreaker. How do you pronounce somebody's name? <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, Jan, I want to start by asking you to tell us your story with, you know, type theory, dependent types, and being a user of Idris. Cool, thank you. So my story starts a long, long time ago when I was an undergraduate at the University of St. Andrews. Now, I'm quite a late-stage PL enthusiast. So when I did my undergraduate, I was more interested in things like distributed systems. I liked logic, but I was more interested in crypto. So this was when crypto meant proper crypto and not uh, what we see nowadays. (laughs) And I, fully enough, one of my biggest mistakes there was I skipped out on doing a course on logic specification and verification with James McKenna, who some people oh. might be aware of. Yes, and his I had some post- dreams with him sometime, yeah. and he is a very, very interesting person with a lot of, you know, he really lights the room. 
he does. He is very nice. And his postdoc at the time, or not necessarily his postdoc, but a postdoc at the department called Edwin Brady. And Edwin Brady is, as many people might know, is the originator of the Idris language. Now, I didn't really know Edwin at the time, and I still wasn't into PL at the time. So I finished my undergraduate, and I went off to be a master's student at the Radboud Universiteit Nijmegen in the Netherlands. And not to do PL, even though there's a very good PL group at the Radboud who are very interested in the clean language, but I was doing their computer security masters. And James McKenna happened to be there as well at the same time, and we had a few chats. But then I still wasn't into PL. So once I did my masters, uh, took a bit longer than I wanted it to, but that's something we can talk about later on, which is about burnout and mental health. But after that, I went back to St. Andrews to do my PhD, originally looking at crypto in the cloud. Mostly I was interested in systems such as predicate-based encryption, where we, it's a radically different concept. Well, I say it's radically different. It's been around for a long, long time, but it's just a, what everyone knows about crypto is fundamentally different. I don't really want to talk in too much about about it now, but I was doing my PhD there looking at software engineering and how we can use these cryptographic systems in the cloud and what that means and how we can do that. But I happened to meet a man in the bar, and that man was Edwin Brady, and he took on a somewhat pastoral technical role in my PhD. And he was not, most people think that he was my principal supervisor, but he wasn't. It was somebody else called Ishbel Duncan, who was into security. And she is, or she, well, I say was, she has retired. Uh, she's, I think she's still alive. I, well, we all hope so. Uh, <laughs> um, she was really great at pastoral care and looking at larger big picture with the PhD, but Edwin was a more of a technical one. And this, and we were talking about languages. I was interested in design patterns. And I still am interested in design patterns on what are the programming idioms we have in our languages and how can we communicate them to other people. And to be very clear, I like the Gang of Four patterns because they addressed a problem in uh, object-oriented languages. Mm -hmm. And we sort of see the same sort of notion of there are problems to be solved in, say, functional language independent types that we need to encode. But the encoding is not just the formalism. It's not just the UML model. There's a whole description end of it there. And this segues nice into my PhD because I thought, well, look, I want to reason about design patterns, but more so on their requirements analysis. And that was one thing that's, is, that I was interested in, I still am interested in. And I was thinking, right, how do you reason about these design patterns? And I looked up things called requirements models and right, I would like to formalize that. I want to create a domain specific modeling language to capture these requirements. And I didn't know what to do. And so I was chatting to this man in the bar, Edwin, and he suggested, you know, I should chase the dragon. <laughs> and that is look at doing dependent types because they provide a really, really expressive environment to reason about our programs. And long story short, I started looking at dependent types. I had a very bad TFP uh, idea and uh, presentation in 2014, but that sort of set off my exploration on using dependent types to reason about models and later on verifying systems. And this whole type-driven technique is wonderful and I really enjoy using it. And from then on, I sort of 
ramped up. I left my PhD for six months, not uh, to do with burnout, but because uh, I was asked by Edwin and another uh, professor at St. Andrews to work on a six-month project investigating how we can use dependent types and behavioral types to reason about uh, systems that are, you know, COT systems, commercial off-the-shelf systems. And the idea being that if you are in a proprietary, well, not in a very secure system, you don't want to re-implement everything, right? So you may want to buy in uh, software programs that from the outside, right? Because somebody's done all the work. You should be able to, you know, it makes a lot of sense in certain situations to say, look, here's this existing existing piece of software. Let's bring it in and let's run it. But if you're in a trusted execution environment, well, you want to make sure that these systems do what they say they do. And so part of the project I was involved in is like using Idris, using dependent types, and using what's called behavioral typing to not reason about uh, the computation of our programs, but about the behavior of our programs with respect to communicating across the wire. In this case, it was for inter-process communication. And what we looked at was this thing of um, being inspired by session types. And now session types are really cute or really neat, cute, neat, whatever, wonderful uh, typing discipline to sort of to reason about the messages that are being sent across the wire. And we sort of took that and we used that to build what we called uh, behavioral firewalls. So you'd run your process in a firewall, uh, in our program, and we'd have an external specification that says, right, these are the allowed behaviors that your program should do. And we will compile a program statically using the dependent types and the types that are inspired by session types to ensure that only the allowed communications can happen. But at runtime, we can then detect if an unallowed communication is happening and report that. And this was a small six-month project, but it just opened my eyes up to a wider stage of going from building modeling languages to doing more computational research and going away from the software la- uh, the software engineering side to the programming languages side. And then with that six-month break, I re- didn't restart my PhD, but I uh, got back into it with a bit more vigor and saying, look, let's use dependent types more, right? And that was great. And so in the final years of my PhD, I looked at using dependent types to build domain-specific goal oriented modeling languages and what that meant. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially uh, there are these languages called goal requirements languages where you can reason about your uh, requirements as a directed graph and there are weights in the graph and how you set up the graph with weights and values on each node will allow you to infer or detect um, information about uh, goal satisfaction. Okay, I'm not gonna go too much into that, but the whole idea was that you have this host language or modeling language. You say, right, that's great, but it's very general purpose. But I want to do something with design patterns. And I think goals and satisfaction is a nice way to model problems and solutions. And when you have a problem, this could be such as, you know, you need, uh, the problem could be, you know, you have unauthenticated user access. You say, well, the solution would be to use access control. But you want to sort of model the interplay between these requirements and solutions. But the goal requirements language is not necessarily expressive enough to capture all the domain-specific terminology. And so you want to be able to say, look, have a more bespoke, 
domain-specific language that can then map down to the goal requirements language or to your meta language. And that sounds an awfully like, um, I would say abstract interpretation, but it is an interpretation, okay? And the way I use dependent types, I'll say, right, cool. Let's index our types, because we are an independently type system, with our meta with our modeling language, which is be the meta model language, so we can design our domain specific modeling language with respect to your your meta modeling language. And so if you try and do any uh, interpretation or do sorry, I'll restart. So if you start building up your terms and specifying them, you have to specify the type in terms of your meta modeling language at the type level and your domain specific language at the value level. And what the dependent types allow you to do is to have this um, uh, isomorphism or intrinsic link between the meta modeling languages and your domain specific language. So that if you try and write something that's wrong, ends up being wrong in the model language, like because of the interpretation, that will be detected at compile time. And with that, you can have much more confidence that your domain specific language is correct with respect to your meta model meta modeling language. And to take it as from the side, you sort of see this with some of the work from Graham Hutton at uh, Nottingham University. Okay, so he has a long line of ICFP uh, papers on uh, constructing compilers, and there's that same notion of like they do this interpretation at the type level of what they're doing, and you can create these like, these nice uh, links between what you do at the value level and what you do at the uh, sorry what you do at the type level. And Valtusfiesta actually has a nice functional pearl uh, in the JFP. On doing something quite similar and it's quite a nice little technique now right so that's the phd so what happened after that <laughs> uh, i said it's a long story so after my phd i was looking for a job and i was fortunate enough to become a teaching fellow at the university of st andrews they needed someone to teach distributed systems for eight months and this came at the perfect time of submitting my phd in december having a job for eight months to not only have my Viva, but then to do the corrections and not have to worry about what I'm doing afterwards. And that was a wonderful, uh, nice um, time because I could then just get heavily involved into teaching and something which I am passionate about without having to think about what am I doing for research? What am I doing for money? You know, I can actually concentrate on the job and do my corrections. Now, along the way, Edwin, uh, you know, a long-time collaborator said, look, I've got my first grant, which in the UK terms is now known as a new investigator award. It's what every new lecturer is able to apply for from the uh, British Research Council. And he was like, look, I need a postdoc, uh, or I prefer the term research associate or research fellow, uh, but I can't name you on it, but you have to apply for it. And I was like, cool, that's fine. He told me about it and I applied for it and I got the job. And that was to look at taking our idea of these behavioral firewalls of using dependent types and things that look like session types to reason about uh, the behavior of third-party programs. I said, right, so instead of doing it for third-party programs, let's do it on the programs we want to write. And that was quite cool. And so I had a research associate's job for one year because that was the duration of the grant funding. And there, it was just taking the data, right, instead of writing these wrappers on processes, let's try and say, look, 
can we use the power of algebraic effects in Idris and session types and sort of mix them together? Now, we actually didn't use algebraic effects explicitly. It was more effects because if you're somebody like Sam Lindley, then algebraic effects are only when you have the algebraic uh, properties associated with the effects. Now, effects and effect handlers are really interesting in that if you're familiar with programming of, with interfaces from, say, Java or um, module systems, whatever, the idea there is you, or type classes even, uh, the idea there is that you program against descriptions of what's going to happen. And at a very conceptual level, high level, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will more advanced uh, practitioners will say this is, you know, it's not quite right, but I think intuitively I like this in that you're programming against interfaces that's saying, look, here's how your terms behave and they might be effective. So if you're doing file I.O., if you've got exceptions, if you have console input output, if you have even logging, right? Uh, as logging is important and that, you know, we can use uh, first of all, we can use dependent types. So Edwin had an ICFP paper on how to have a, I'm going to call it a pure implementation of effects in Idris. So you don't need language extensions, which is one of the beauties of dependently typed languages. You can write your own language extensions without having to hack the compiler. And we use these uh, this setup to design effects to reason about our about the communication of our programs agnostic to the context in the communication context in which it was running. Okay, so when that means, so when we talked about effect handler, so the effect was called the message effect, and that said, look, right, you're gonna do a communication with someone, but I don't know what's gonna happen at the transport level, right? You could be doing inter-process communications, we could be spawning threads, we could be doing network communication and communicating uh, to the United States. We could also be just spawning, um, our own threads and doing something there. And we say, look, we don't care what you do. What we care about is, are you sending or are you receiving? And this is where the session types come in and they say, look, you can then like, have that ordering of when are you doing a send? When are you doing a receive? And that's what session types give you is that typing discipline to reason about that statically. But we use the effects handlers to reason about, to separate that description of what's going on with the actual uh, handling for a specific communication context. So when you run your program, you can say, right, I'm doing IPC now. I'm doing networking. I'm doing this other communication context. Have at it, which is quite a Scottish term to say, let's get on with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at that and I was looking at the interesting interplay in this. So for session types, uh, for those not aware, so you have the standard binary session types where you are just having a sender and a receiver but you also have what is really cool multi-party session types where multi-party is when you have more than two participants in your protocol and if you're in a dependently typed language you can do lots of cool things about reason about values and promoting that up to have value dependent session types but there is a correctness issue in that you could accidentally depend on knowledge you haven't received yet and part of what i was looking at was trying to do a mechanization of using the dependent types to sort of say, look, you could only send values and reason about values as a participant that you've already seen. And this links in nicely with some theory work from <clears throat> decades ago from Bernardo Tejino, uh, who's at Nova in Lisbon. I think it was Nova. I know he's, at, he's in Lisbon. He's a Portuguese. Uh, and sort of like marrying the theory and the practice a little bit. And that was all cool. But then at the end of the day, the clock was ticking on my 
money, right? Uh, it came clear to me that in September of one year, uh, I wouldn't have a job by the August. And I was starting a family and it's like, oh, fuck, what am I going to do? <laughs> right? Because I need income. I need to support my family. And so I took a big, big dive, a big leap of faith, and I saw that there was a research associate position happening in Glasgow, of all places. Uh, and if you come from Scotland, then a lot of people gravitate to one of the big cities, so Aberdeen, Dundee, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, especially if you come from the part of Scotland I come from, which is the very far north. And I never liked Glasgow. <laughs> uh, it's quite a busy city. I prefer Edinburgh for uh, reasons. Uh, let's not uh, bring up politics here, but uh, <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone has their favourites. And the research associate position was to look at hardware design language and this was a multi-project site with then imperial college london and harriet watt university which is in, on the outskirts of edinburgh and glasgow to say look hardware if you design hardware these days then you want to bring in uh pre-designed bits of hardware called IP cores, which just get the binary blobs. Sounds a bit familiar. And then you want to integrate it into your current system. And you have to have the assurances from the manufacturers that it does what it says it does. And the standards of how hardware communicates is written down, uh, it's, it's actually standardized, it's written down in PDF, but the interfaces are written in an XML language called IP exact, but there, we have to say, right, you've bought in your binary blob. How do you know it communicates, it does the communication it's supposed to do? Session types. <laughs> and so there's three of us, there's three sites in the project, uh, Glasgow, and our role, my role was looking at, well, we sort of leaned into it. I was new to hardware, uh, but I select type systems. And I was look, and I've been principally on that project looking at how to build orchestration language and build more fancier types for hardware description languages. Harriet Watt was looking at other aspects which escaped me at the moment. I do apologize for that. And Imperial, well, that was Nobuko Yoshida. And Nobuko Yoshida is the expert on session types. I think she is, because she is one of the original instigators of the whole typing discipline. As we were working with her, and they that's how I was looking at the session types. And this was a five-year project. It's still currently running, even though this was about seven years ago. No, six years ago. Yes, six. Uh, it was a long time. Uh, it's long time running. And that started my uh, interest in using fancy types or dependent types and anything else you would like to call it to start reasoning better about hardware. Now, I'm not the only researcher interested in this, and after I've told you my story, we can delve into it, because there's lots of really cool people who know a lot more about hardware than I do, who are doing much more cool things than I do about hardware. And uh, ostensibly, what I've been doing with hardware is looking at, can we design, or can we build better types that describe hardware interfaces with respect to their XML interface description? And I had an eCoot paper in 2019 about that. But also what I've been gearing into is being interested in this notion of quantitative typing. Now, quantitative typing is basically, 
part of this notion of this linear typing that if you have your type system, so types at the moment, when you think about them, are structural. They just describe you the computation and how things reduce. But what they don't reason about is the substructural properties. And we've seen this with session types and that they reason beyond the structure of your computation, but reasoning about the communication. But there's another facet there is how many times do you use a variable? Okay. And in linear types, you have to use variables exactly once. Affine type systems, it's at most once. And there's a really cool set of work from University of Kent with Dominic Orchard on the granule system, which is you have graded uh, modalities, which is basically you can use it n times. Okay. But the whole idea of quantitative typing, and it's great for dependent types, as well as that you can reason about not just how many times I'm going to use it, which is restricted at the moment in address two, at least to you can use things exactly once or many times, but also when it appears in your in the compilation pipeline. So if things are zero zero uh, annotated, then they get erased at runtime, but they appear at compile time. And this is from Bob Atke. Uh, is the rules that are implemented in just two, but uh, harks a bit further back to that to Connor McBride, both Connor and Bob are at Strathclyde, on doing a bit more principled reasoning about not just how many times something is used, but when it's used. And what I've done and what I've had published, let's be clear on that, what I've published is not everything I've done. I've done a fuck a lot more than what I've published. And what I've done in this space is I've got a linear orchestration language that allows you to replicate what you might see in tools like Vivado, uh, a well-known tool for designing uh, hardware systems. And just replicating that box diagram you might see, if you're ever familiar with, if you've ever seen a hardware diagram, basically it's box connected with wires. It looks like circuits, but a lot more meaty. And I've got that. That's not been published yet because people don't seem to like it. Uh, for one reason or another, and that you get good and bad reviews, uh, which happens. But the other work that I've got, that I'm actually going to Seattle to the European Conference of Programming in Pacific Northwest, of all places, <laughs> is for how we, yeah, 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 tell me about it, is how we can get, um, how we can use this notion of quantitative typing of uh, essentially the linearity. Uh, into netlists, which are like basically designing circuits and sort of uh, being very practical about it and saying, look, you're going to write up your netlist, your circuit diagram in system Verilog, and we're going to do retrofit that type system with a fancier type system that does tracking, fine-grained tracking of how and when uh, wires are used so that you can, uh, so you're making the implicit design decisions. So if you split a wire, and that would be in hardware design languages when you sort of repeat a variable, you can say, look, you can't do that. You need to explicitly split it. Or if you combine two bits, you say, you can't do that unless you explicitly do that. And the idea being that if you're doing this uh, check, you can sort of say, look, have you accidentally done fan? And the key motivating example for this, sorry, is to say, look, you might have a module that have two um, inputs A and B and a single output C. And right, if you say simply mapping it to a NAND gate or any sort of gate, right, you accidentally, or is it accidental to say, look, you take the A input Y and you plug it into both ends of your NAND gate and you plug the output to the C and you've got a dangling B input. Is that what you want? 
or did you and so because a NAND gate where the input goes to both inputs where the input goes to both in is simply a NOT gate right it's a valid construct but if you have that dangling B it's like well is that supposed to be there is the typo that you've disconnect you, you didn't connect it or like the fact that you mentioned it you, you can't tell but in the quantitative typing world you can say you can flag an error saying oh you did you used a twice you didn't explicitly split it uh, split it uh, what about this b it's unused and it sort of like um, highlights what we can sort of do already in with tools like verilator but we've got a type system now that does it and verilator is an extensive ecstatic anal static analysis tool which is great it's nice, but it's it's external static analysis. But what we've done is we've seen taking that asset of uh, the quantities to say, look, do it in the type system. So now it becomes part of your uh, modeling tools. It's not an external check. It's an in internal check, which is great, which is nice. But the key thing about this is all of this, what we've talked about is being underpinned by modeling these type systems and languages in Idris using dependent types to reason about the correctness of these constructions, these languages I'm making, because my mantra is dependent types keep you honest. And we've seen this with the other project that I'm working on at Glasgow, which is called App Control. And it's looking at leveraging a cherry uh, operating system or Cherry capabilities. Now, for those who aren't aware of capabilities, uh, Cherry are hardware-enabled capabilities. So when you're in your architecture, you can provide capabilities and it's hardware-enforced. And capabilities are saying protecting regions of memory. There's a lot more to it than what I can explain because that's not necessarily where my interest is on the project. My interest on the project is saying, look, as we're promoting these hardware, these cherry capabilities further up the hardware software stack, so going from hardware into software, at the moment they're exposed as a C library, but if you want to go higher up into, say, a language like Rust, okay, what will your type system look like? How can you extend Rust to support capabilities knowing that you don't accidentally introduce some error or some type inconsistency because you could always hack on the compiler and do the fuck you want right but how do you know that the you're hacking you're playing around is correct so if you have a formal model of your language and you start extending that with the new construct you want to look at then the form the formal verification will tell you is that an allowed extension or not now i'm not modeling rust so at the moment what i have in dependently type languages i have a model of a featherweight, lightweight, depending on which banterweight, bantam, bantam, bantamweight uh, language, which is imperative. Okay, and one of the things that dependent types is good at is is allowing you to uh, have these well-typed, uh, intrinsically well-typed or intrinsically typed uh, language descriptions. So you're modeling, say, the simply typed lambda calculus, an imperative language. Uh, and so on. Uh, the idiom is known as a well-typed uh, interpreter, but you're building up this model of your language with the types and then using dependent types to reason about the type safety of it in terms of doing proof, uh, preservation and progress. What you can do in software foundations, you can do in dependently typed languages. So there's the PILFA book, Programming Language Foundations, sorry, Programming Language Foundations in Agda, which is by Phil Wadler and uh, then Kokke, 
uh, and now Jeremy's Seek at Edinburgh. Jeremy's not at Edinburgh, he's at Utah, I think. Um, on doing, uh, providing you, you know, how can you do what you can do in Software Foundations, but in Agda? I've just, and I've done it in Idris. Okay. And we're building up these formal models of your language, building using the, uh, doing a proofsome of progress and preservation, which is our as data types. And uh, we can talk about that more later. But using that same uh, idea of doing that proof, but then reusing that proof automatically by the way dependent types work to create a runtime for your program. And so that your proof of progress and preservation, which is a classic reduction semantics, small step reduction semantics of how things compute, you do that. Okay. And so what I've done in the app control project at the moment, and, I, and this is what I'm currently writing up, so it's in the forefront of my head, is, well, look, we've modeled an imperative language. I've used work from uh, the Delft programming language group. Uh, there's a nice guy called Aryan Ruvutz, whose uh, PhD thesis is really, really nice to read. Uh, and he's done his and used a technique called definitional interpreters, which is basically an interpreter, but using the well-typed aspect of dependent types to make thing, make sure things run properly. And so we have that with the imperative language, right? And now I've got this model of my language. I've written as a embed, embedded DSL or well-typed interpreter. But now what we've done is we've added, right, a parser, a type checker. So now that my programming language that I write is not an EDSL in Idris. It is a standalone DSL that looks a bit like Rust. Doesn't have the same borrowing checking, or doesn't have any borrow checking, but you know, it looks like an imperative language, but has got a formally verified compiler and type checker, which is great because now I know my type system is correct for this language, and I can now start extending it. And one of the simplest extensions we've done is multi-party session types. And by doing so, dependent types keep you honest, they can keep track of you do these extensions. Well, what does that you know what does that mean? What sort of context do you need? Is it just typing what anything else? And dependent types help you do that. So now what we're doing is we've got the language, we've got the multi-party session types, we're now cataloging what were the changes, what changes we made so that if we want to look at say making session types native in a language like Rust, so instead of going for the EDSL approach, sorry, the code generation approach of uh, tools that Nabucco, Yoshida and her group do, or other people, we say, look, this is what you need to do to literally extend the compiler. Uh, doesn't mean what they're doing is wrong. Doesn't mean what we're doing is the absolute truth. There's no one way to do these things, but it's telling a story of using dependent types and using the formal verification to work out what would you need to do if you wanted to do it like that. That's currently what I'm working on, but it's not the end of the story because I've talked about my role as a research associate and I'm very pleased that in 58 days, I looked in it today <laughs> before we started, mm -hmm. uh, I'm starting the University of Strathclyde as a lecturer in cybersecurity because a lot of the stuff I do is not necessarily, I do extend the theory uh, for domain-specific languages for hardware, but a lot of the stuff is applied in the area of cybersecurity. And I've been really fortunate that I've been selected by the University of South Clyde to work with them as a lecturer uh, after uh, six years, more or less, as a research associate, and after you know four years as a PhD student 
uh, and to use the American terms, a student and then candidate. We don't have that distinction here in the UK, uh, per se. Uh, that I can you know carry on with my research and saying do what I would like to do. And I'm not saying what I'm doing now is not what I want to do, but I can now sort of say step back and say, look, what is it, what I've been doing over the last six years, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And I'm moving from being a you know, researcher to a research leader. And that's quite a challenge. And sort of highlight the difference between, say, the American system and, say, the UK, uh, European system is that, you know, once I've done my PhD, uh, your PhD is for three and a half years, four years even. And then you have to look for your research associate jobs, your postdocing. And for some, it might take many, many postdocs to become a lecturer because lecturing positions, lecturer positions, right? We don't have the concept of tenure in the UK, but once you've got a job, unless you really fuck up, it's permanent. But in America, you have to go through this tenure process for five years or so on. And you may not even get a permanent job after that. At the time of this recording, there is a very sad case in America. I don't go, I don't highlight too much of, you know, somebody being denied tenure and it looks like it's, there's a lot of politics behind it of why they were denied yeah. tenure. And yet She's they were from very... from university. I don't know if you know that. Uh, no, I did not yeah. know that. I was uh, yeah. trying to be a bit more... Um, purposely vague on this and it's just it's a yeah, it's okay I, I i've been talking to her in private um i hope she would take my invitation for for coming here and telling her story because as you mentioned this is this is big and in a way shows how it's shit right Let, let's be <laughs> frank about that you work away for five yeah. you work away for five yeah. years to for your tenure case promotion case and something just goes along and says no nope Nope. No. No. And and what's even more frustrating? Yeah. Sorry if I if I'm just <laughs> dumping some frustration here. Like what is well, even more frustrating is because <laughs> is that like think about it. The academia we're already giving you know like putting a lot of our lives not only not only during tenure like the PhD here in the US don't usually takes four years it takes six sometimes seven or eight you know. Because there's a lot to do. There are publications that they they expect us to do. So you're already, so, yeah, no, you're, you're already yeah, so like the, a yeah. big part of your life already devoted to academia. And then you, you take this five years that you're already there and then you're you're denied to be there. Like it's, it's yeah. a big headache. And, so, and there's also those differences as well. And so, right. So when I did my PhD, and it's more or less the case of you do not have to be published to get your PhD. Right, you have to have right. papers of publishable quality to show that. Sorry, uh, so that you can do research, but they don't necessarily have to be published. It's great if they're published, right? Because then you say when you write your uh, your thesis, then you say right, these chapters were peer reviewed in these top. Well, let's be honest here; they were peer reviewed by the by the community that's saying it's good science. So your examiners will say, okay. And they'd have very little to argue against because then they're going against their community. And But still, it's that notion of, so yeah, and so this to highlight the, to listeners who don't realize this, so in the UK, you get three and a half years of funding to do your PhD. So we go through the PhD process a lot quicker, but then we have a longer research associate or postdocing period. Right. And a lot of people equate... Uh, a lot of people outside, like if I say, well, at least me, myself, right? So, and I'm 
most important person in this podcast, so I'm right, <laughs> is that, um, you know, in America, your PhD is actually, say, a UK PhD plus a postdoc, right? Yep. So when you become mm-hmm. the PhD yeah. candidate, yeah. Uh, it's basically, it's that sort of, sort of time frame. In other places like, say, the Netherlands and on the continent in Europe, then the PhD position is a five-year process where one year worth of your time over five years is more or less teaching, right? So you get mm-hmm. paid for that, but you get five years. And there will be, uh, I think, any program that says you have to have published in top venues to be able to, uh, and this is a personal opinion, uh, any program that says you have to have published before you can get your PhD is wrong because the publication system is just so pot luck that you know you can have people who do great research that just can't get published because of one thing or another like yeah. on, like due to unprofessional reviews uh but you should have papers of publishable quality to show that you can do that jump because every academic knows review process is pot luck yeah and yeah. and and again and tenure case shouldn't be pot luck you should dot all the i's cross all the t's you should do everything and if you fail the tenure process, it shouldn't be a reflection on you. It's a reflection on your institution for not getting you across the line. And in the case that we've talked about, there's more to hand there. Because that person has certainly dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and yeah. done more than enough. Now, this thing, yeah. this thing about the publication, sometimes I feel yeah. there is a little bit more of politics going on. You know, like both departmental politics, I want to wanna make sure, because... I feel that something that is very different between the U.S. and the and Europe in general is that professors here in the U.S. they have a lot in their labs to bring money to the university. They must be getting good grants and things like that. And, right. So and to that... provide a so to provide a clarification there. So when I think of a professor, I think of a full professor. Okay, because this is a terminology difference, right? So in the U.K., yeah. I'm not starting as an associate professor or no or assistant professor i'm starting as a lecturer going to a senior lecturer going to a reader and then if i want to sort of give up on life become a professor but we already gave up on life when we started in academia now <laughs> indeed 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 no but so there's a sort of a, a difference and so also it's a cultural difference right so and i'm not saying you're wrong here just to so let everyone you know there are different academic cultures across the world let's right. you know so even you know latin america new zealand or oceana asia africa right and there are different models of doing things and what you see more in the u.s is all the universities are a bit further apart than people would like okay mm-hmm. and so you can't easily commute to six of the best pl universities in the world true right but also, as more or less expected, is once you've done your PhD, you're going to go on to the job market yeah. to become an associate professor. Mm-hmm. In the UK, you don't have that. There's no annual um, procession of newly minted PhDs saying, I need a job so I can build my research group. Right? In the UK, it's basically... You could grad, you could finish or have your viva in middle of winter. Mine was in February, right? Or you could have it in November. Any time throughout the year, you don't get the knock on the head with a cap until 
the summer. But then after that, what do you do for a job? There's no you know, job getting a lectureship in the UK at least, uh, also in the continent. It's you know, it's hellish. It's not enough jobs for not enough people. And to make things aware, and I'm not saying it's all bad because we should ideally look at industry for a lot of interesting research opportunities. But at the moment, in UK academia, uh, we are striking. We have a union, the Universities and College Union, because don't be afraid of unions. A sign of a healthy society is that unions are loved and hated equally, but they're there. Because uh, uh, we're striking about paying conditions because pay shit. You know, pay is not getting better. Our pensions are being uh, not destroyed, but it's all precarious. There's lots of issues there. But we're striking. But also, jobs aren't uh, are not always there. You get one job advert, and you know half the world applies for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in America, there's a bit more. There are lots of jobs that people can do, and that's interesting in terms. Of, if you want to look at the roots going up uh, from saying a PhD student candidate to the academic career ladder, you know, there's different routes to doing it, and there's advantages and disadvantages, right? But we're here to talk about PL <laughs> and type theory, and I think maybe we should uh, uh, move on from that. Not because I, uh, it's just we could talk about that for the entire podcast, and I think it's true. It's true, and there's some really sh- shit situations happening, but I think let's sort of move on because we can always come back to talking about the academic thing because I'm a parent in academia and it's good and bad right there's lots of good things and there's lots of things to talk about being in academia but you've got me to talk about PL and type theory and let's uh let's switch focus to that yes for sure for sure um well the thing the thing about about PL in academia that I don't know. I feel that these are themes that are starting to get recurrent in this podcast. And the reason for that is that it, it, it is very important for all of us that are, that are here, right? These are, these are problems that are affect us very directly. And these are problems that in one way or another, directly or indirectly, we have to work with them through them and against them. Right. And in particular, you know, like you, you mentioned, you mentioned about burnout doing your master's, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, undergraduate. Uh, undergraduate. That's and master's. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <PhD>. So I, <laughs> I personally also just came back from a little sabbatical, if you can call it that, because I don't think PhD, PhD students do sabbaticals, but I took a pretty much like a year off to, you know, like take my mind away from all of this and refocus on what are my interests and what, what I'm getting at. And one thing that I realized in one way or another is that there are very big problems in academia. There are big problems in PL academia. And these are things that I believe that my generation of academics will have to face. And these are your generation as well, because you're just starting this. So this is, this is why I feel these are the, the kind of things that are getting recurrent here and will keep being recurrent, I hope, because these are things that we definitely have to talk more and to address more. But well, uh, we can we can come back to I think there there are some some very interesting things that we can touch about 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 that later. But no, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. well, so to make things a little more constructive in a way, <laughs> how about we talk 
I feel that you have quite some some views in two things that I wanna that I wanna touch. I'll leave it to you. What can we go through first? The the first one is you know like seems to me that you have some thoughts on how to best teach PL things along those lines. And the second thing is um, about the reviewing process, right? Cool. Yeah, these are topics dear to my heart, right? So. We have to, it's not just about teaching PL, it's about self-study. So a lot of the stuff that I've learned in programming language theory and type theory is more or less self-study, right? I didn't do any graduate courses. I've not been to any summer schools in PL. Everything I've learned is from reading Tapple and just the audience can't see this, but they'll hear this, which is, this is what's on my book, on my desk, has, which is he Tapple. He has his Bible. He has his Bible uh, in his hand, Tapple. <laughs> yeah, I have Tapple and you'll hear the thud in a minute of... It being slammed <laughs> down on my desk. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I've been reading about that. And it's like, how can you, and if you want to teach things, you also want to look about how can you make programming language theory, programming language practice, principles, paradigms, accessible. We have to remember that the PL is a really broad field and you can't really master all. You're either a master of, what's this phrase? You're a, a master of, uh, sorry, there's a really nice phrase in English or so like a, something of something master of none, right? Yeah. And you can't really be an expert in everything. You have to really find your niche and field. And I think along those lines, and a lot of the theory you want to go teach uh, and practice gets lost because some of the presentation can be quite assuming. Yeah. And that can be quite confusing. To do a case in point as... You know, you asked me offline, you know, what my thoughts and how best to teach PL, and this links into how do you make it accessible, you know. Mm -hmm. And there was a really, really nice, really nice uh, uh, inaugural lecture for Felina Hermans, who's now a professor at a university Amsterdam. I think it's the Free University. I, I'll we can correct it in the show notes, but she is a programming language person but she doesn't look at theory she looks at she looks more at at accessibility right principally and sadly well not sadly for me because i could understand it the inaugural lecture was in dutch right so if you do find it <laughs> uh i don't know if there are translations for it but it's great <laughs> and one of the things she picked up on and i lo really love her work in this area in that she wants to try and tackle what's called epistemic injustice right which is, when we are designing something, we have a lots of preconceived notions in our head, preconceived abilities of what people can do, can read, how they read, how they write, terminology and all that. And if you are in the know of these things or they are natural to you, then it makes your life a lot easier. And if you're not, it makes it harder. And one of the cases in points is every single programming language that we teach mostly uses English for keywords. And if English is not your first language, do you know what print means? Do you know what for means? Do you know the semantics of what for loop does? Do you know what, what printing will do? You know, even the numbers we use, the values, you know, constants like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, those are... Well, actually, they're Arabic numbers, but we use them in English, right? Because they're, you know, 
uh, but they're not uh, what Arabic uh, use for numbers now. But anyway, that's a preconceived notion, right? And so if you want to teach, and so Felina Hermans, you know, her background is, you know, she did her PhD, I think it was at Delft, worked at Leiden for a while. For a long time, she has taught high schoolers programming, right? How to do programming. And one of the things, you know, she got from this was the epistemic injustice of that, you know, if you want to study programming, if you want, and this applies to theory as well, because there's some nice links there, is that there's lots of preconceived notions in how you design your language, okay? We've talked, about, you know, I've mentioned you things like printing for, right? Even the, you know, it's English keywords, right? I don't know uh, Spanish, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you want to program in Python? that you could use the Spanish terms, the Spanish keywords, right? Or Portuguese, because uh, I see it's a Brazilian flag in the background. Uh, or if you know Portuguese, <laughs> uh, do, you, you know, do you want to do, um, you know, wouldn't that be better for those who are new to programming to have that mental model of, of, not, of you know, not having to learn English first, but they could use their native language? And so one of the nice things about Felina Herman is she's got this heady, language, which I presume is named after Hedy Lamarr, one of the famous uh, electrical engineers from the 40s, who's also an actress. You know, really bit of history there. Uh, mm. she, uh, to sort of see why she's famous, uh, she designed uh, a part of the guidance system for either missiles or submarines during the 1940s. Wow. It was really amazing. Yeah, wow. uh, if you look her up, Hedy. Uh, also a famous actress. So if, you ever, if you're into Mel Brooks, uh, if you ever watch Blazing Saddles, one of the main characters is called Headley Lamar, and one of the recurring motifs is that everyone calls him Hedy. <laughs> and he corrects it. Anyway, I, I digress. Well, anyway, so she's got this language, Hedy, and the whole idea is it is a gradual syntax, not typed, language. And to help combat the uh, epistemic injustice is that you say, right, you go through many stages of grief. I call it grief, but it's not. It's actually learning. Of You start off in a language that looks almost like natural language. There's no structure. Well, there's minimal structure. It looks more like natural language programming. Because a lot of the preconceived notions of how to program, say, in Python, in Rust, in Java, is a semicolon means something. Quotation marks mean something. You know, system to out to print line means something. Types mean something. And if the student doesn't have the preconceived knowledge, when they get presented with a compiler error, it's written for people who are aware of what the language is. Mm -hmm. And what she's done with her wonderful team, and she's taken a language called Hedy, and she starts off on you know, level one, which is very unstructured, more natural language. Uh, it's been translated into many languages. Uh, I don't know off heart how many languages, but it's, you know, it's like even like non-ASCII languages like Thai, um, languages from India, languages from Pakistan, uh, Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. you know? And students get exposed to that and they learn how to program in this language. And once they've mastered that, and I'm doing that in inverted quotes, as they can then move on to the next level, which adds in a little bit more rigor. And so on and so forth. And so she, what she's done with this heady language uh, is she's got this gradual notion of learning 
of going from something that you're familiar with to something you're not familiar with, and at the end result, it just happens to be Python, or close enough to Python. That is, when they make the jump to going up to Python, it's no longer new. And why does that matter for PL? Well, one of the things I really hated about teaching uh, as an undergrad, uh, as a PhD candidate doing demonstration, is you have to get students to understand error messages when they write in any language, be it Java, Smalltalk, Scheme, Haskell, whatever. They have to learn not only what, you know, they have to learn programming language concepts for the language they're working in, right? Mm -hmm. And they might not be, and if they're new, they might not be familiar with it. And then they say, right, you can program in Haskell. Ergo, you now know the simply type band calculus or system F. No, you don't. You know Haskell and how it's presented it. You know OCaml. Well, you don't know System F, even though it is System F uh, or System F Omega, let's be precise. But you don't know it because you haven't done that translation of your concrete syntax down to the abstract syntax, which just happens to be it. And one of the ways I think we, it's a nice way to make things accessible is to take this gradual approach of saying, look, and this is one thing I want to do as part of my teaching, but more to do with security concepts, but also with programming languages, because it's a really cool concept of saying, look, can we start someone and say a lightweight version of, say, Haskell or OCaml and gradually take them to System F Omega or System F, right? So that they then get a better appreciation of how your languages work, make it a bit more accessible. But there's more to that, right? So a lot more. I, I can say a few more things about this. So one of the things I would like to talk about is like the tooling, right? So right, let's say now you've, uh, or even going from System F all the way up to Haskell, you know, there and back again, uh, a Hobbit story. Now, but part of it is, you know, we're talking about PL, so let's talk about learning a language, right? I talked about being in first, uh, teaching first years Java, right? I've also taught second years, this was at St. Andrews, Haskell and Python, okay? Now, ever messages, as we know from talking about Felina Herman's work, can be hairy. You need to know things to understand them. And I don't know if you have looked at the type for fold R or traverse recently <laughs> in Haskell. Yeah, they can be a little confusing for first-time right. users. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's confusing for first-time users. And there's projects. So in Utrecht, there was the, I think it's hugs, and, and they look at more about making, generating... Uh, more useful error messages. Okay, that's cool. It's interesting work. I've got nothing against this work because a lot of work is all interesting for a reason. The people do it there, and I go, well, look, right. Why are we using and trying to make sense of industrial strength tools for teaching and research, or like mm. industrial research strength tools to teach programming concepts or programming languages, right? Right. It's because the reason we do that is knowledge transfer. So we teach students, uh, say, Java in some of the universities I've gone to in the first year because when they change degree or they switch out degree to do something else because you have a multi-subject uh, intake where they all have their majors and minors and they can switch degrees, well, they've got transferable skills. They, they know JavaScript. They know Java. They can go off the industry and do interesting things. They know the language. That, that's fine, but is it? But it's not 100% great because then they're learning a language. So I remember having a 
in my first year at St. Andrews being told, somebody says, can we use Dreamweaver to build the websites? And this was for an IT course. And for those of you who are old enough to remember Dreamweaver, <laughs> it was a integrated development environment for websites. Right? Uh, it shows my age <laughs> a little bit. Uh, and the head of school at the time basically says, well, when I was young, we learned Algo or S-Algo uh, or Algo 68, blah, blah, blah. This, you know, long, long, long time ago. But nobody uses it anymore. They all use Java. Right? Times change. Tooling changes. Languages change. And so it's better to teach principles and paradigms than to move on. So, but getting to my point, so I'm digressing, and which is, right, when I was younger, my father gave me a kid's carpentry toolbox. So, if you're in carpentry, then you have saws, you have files, you have hammers, nails, whatever. But this wasn't a kid's, like a plastic toy. This was a proper toolkit but aimed for something that a kid could use, like a six, seven-year-old kid. So he didn't give me, you know, give me access to a plane or all the big saws and all, all that stuff, right? He gave me tooling that was suitable for my age, for my knowledge to play around with, to be able to use. Because um, if you think about a saw, a saw can be, you know, 50 centimeters in length or something like that. You know, it's, it's a large thing. And imagine a seven-year-old kid trying to use that saw but then to use a smaller saw designed for them is better, right? So if we're going to start, and this is all about teaching PL, right? We'll go into theory a bit more. And that, well, why don't we try and give people a more conducive environment to learn about programming or maybe to learn the language in an environment that's better for them? And that is a quite interesting concept, okay? Because at the moment, we're giving people industrial research strength tools, right? Now, people think, well, you don't, oh, we've got all this great infrastructure. Do we, why should we change it and move people on? And I go, well, we shouldn't because there's lots of great work coming out now on, on developer experience. So, you know, everyone uses VS Code now. Even Coq people use VS Code. And that's okay. a big statement, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> Agda and Edris people, you know, people are, are migrating to this, right? And maybe what we should be looking at is not creating new languages for people, say, to learn, say, functional programming or to learn, say, uh, object-oriented programming. But let's look at the existing design space. And one of the things I really want to explore and get some and work with some, say, computer science education people and saying, right, uh, on what the impact of this would be is, and it's a bit of anticlimactic, is let's get rid of the prelude and replace it something that is more easier for teaching. <laughs> so everyone can, <laughs> Because GCH error messages are quite cool and can be quite precise if the if the library they're working with is as precise, okay? And so this is one thing like, you know, the type for fold R and traverse are hairy because they're designed for industrial strength programming. So why not replace it with a parallel where traverse just works on lists and they're going to use it for a semester and then, but then they get what traverse is, they don't get any, you know, there's no, uh, and I don't use the phrase epistemic injustice to describe this, but, you know, there's no preconceived notion. They don't have to learn new things. And you as an educator can then introduce these new things to them. And it's a very simple change. You don't need to do anything crazy as in designing a new language. You get the lang Haskell's, a, you know, Haskell 98 is a great language. Uh, 
let's not talk about the rest of Haskell. But you know, it's great. There's great error messages. The compiler's nice. So like you know, but then but let's change the environment people are working in. Yeah. That's right. I, I'm. Uh, we're talking about accessibility of PL. I realize I've got notes on my screen for people who uh, just to be clear and transparent about these things, uh, which are trying to remind me of what I want to talk about. And the other bit I want to talk about accessibility is something that I think might be quite decisive uh, in some way. And so this comes. Uh, this is quite a long-term interest of me from the days when I started using Idris and seeing Agda being used and seeing Coq being used. I've not actually used Coq at all, but you know I've read Software Foundation, so you're familiar. You know I get familiar with the syntax there. And to help motivate this, so I'm going to mention another podcast here, the Threads and Signals podcast. It's really Which nice. Which is great from the Jane Street people. Yes, indeed. And they had Richard Eisenberg on it recently, and he said lots of good things. Uh, he even prompted me to try and write a good definition of what dependent types are, which I haven't said, but <laughs> because everyone has to have that one. Um, and he mentions there that you know code is read a lot more than it's written. Right, has to be accessible. You know, so maybe we should look at presenting our formalisms and our code in a way that's nicer to read. But mathematicians don't do that. Andre. Bauer, uh, a lot of people might know him. I think he's at the University of Ljubljana. Is Ljubljana? Okay, yeah. So it's in the Balkans. So it's either Slovenia, I think. Anyway, uh, we can correct that in the show notes because uh, remember he had a really nice talk in February this year at the mechanized proof assistant workshop in San Francisco entitled Formalizing Invisible Mathematics. And this is this is uh, to do with accessibility as well. And he mentions, and I like this, and I agree with this, mechanization helps make the invisible visible. So that if you mechanize your programs, don't go for efficiency, go for correctness. Mechanization forces you to be honest. Dependent types make you honest. You cannot hide details. You can't say, blah, 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 see this paper. Or blah, 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 we assume this, right? Or this is widely known. If you're mechanizing, you have to write all the blah, blah, blahs down for it to work, which is what with my work in this language for app control is why we mechanize it, is to make it that. And the whole point there is just saying, look, by doing that, we're providing complete proofs. We're making it more accessible. Right, and that you don't, you know, if you want to learn about something, you have a history of where to go in that proof of how everything's defined, and that's great because you're now saying you don't need to second, you know, because assumed knowledge that's epistemic injustice. You know, one of the things that I really I hate is nobody's explained to me when I look at some PL papers of why they sometimes have, you know, where does, you know, what's the history, and we need more historians in PL to keep track of where our society is going of you have a box with your judgment in that says look under this context you know es type t to describe languages nobody's explained to me where it is it just happens to appear in every paper and i can't find a paper that says this is why it's called that <laughs> it's assumed knowledge it is unless right? you know the right person who tells you to do that or yeah. explains to you about mm-hmm. it and if you don't yeah. and that's important it is and <laughs> but the thing is it's and that's the thing, you want to make things more accessible in that manner. So this is part of the mechanism. And I say, do look at Andre Bauer's talks. It's quite nice for that. But we, we can go we can go deeper, right? Uh, presentation. 
I'm, I can read Tapple, but I find it harder to read Pilfa, which is the active version of Social Foundations, because there's a lot of mixfix and Unicode and Agda notation that is really, really hard to understand unless you have an interactive experience, like a browser or you're doing it in the editor. For me, I find mixfix and some Unicode notations really hard to read. Other people don't. Great. I do. Lean4, and there's a talk at Edinburgh a few weeks ago uh, with one of the uh, engineers on Lean4 talking about how they've got this new system to allow mathematicians to write down their notations as they would in their paper, but in Lean4, <laughs> which to me is the complete opposite, not complete opposite, it's sort of a sort of uh, is on. It's formalizing the mathematics, but it's sort of linked to Andre uh, Bauer's notion of, you know, by doing the mechanization, it makes things a bit clearer, right? You can sort of have this history and this trace of what the theorems are, what they do. Mm -hmm. But by using the notation and the Unicode, it can make things a bit harder. And another case in point, you know, there's a wonderful paper, or, or technically wonderful, let's be uh, honest, of the System F for Fun and Profit. Uh, sorry, System F in Agda for Fun and Profit, which was by uh, James Chapman, Chess, uh, uh, Chess, oh God, I've forgotten his name. Uh, James Chapman, Phil Wadler, uh, I think then, and then Coca, uh, of the you know mechanized System F in Agda, right? And I read the paper and I was translating it to address. I've attempted it many times over the last couple of years. Uh, finally got around to doing it last week, a complete uh, reproduction. And I was like, what does this symbol mean? And there was a U symbol, sum, with a plus in it, in the code. I was reading, meant, I was reading the paper, so I didn't have it in an editor. I didn't have the original source on hand. I was reading the paper. I couldn't work out what that meant because there was no definition in the paper because it was invisible. Assumed, yeah. Assumed. Turns out it was just either in Agda, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> but the point of it is, you know, Unicode and Mixfix, right, can be nice to use, but they can be incredibly hard to read if you're not used to, it or you don't, or if you don't have an interactive environment. And so, even though I like some of the Pilfa uh, Programming Language Foundation Agda treatment of uh, how they do reasoning about programming language foundations in a dependently typed language is really hard to read. I have an easier time reading software foundations uh, from, when, from what I do remember of it because it's all ASCII. Because it's more readable. Because I don't have to look up what notation is. The mix fix, I don't have to look. And I've got, I've got glasses on. I've got poor eyesight. I don't have to say, is that a speck of dust on my monitor or is that the Agda dot operator or is it a back tick for the variable? Or is it dust? <laughs> Right. True. Yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> and that and, and that is annoying. And so, and I go back to uh, I think it was it Robert Harper. He has the other textbook that we need you need to read about programming language foundation semantics. Uh, and he has this wonderful uh, quote. I say, everything's wonderful, right? He has this really nice informative quote. You know, concrete syntax is what we write as a user, 
as ambiguous. You need shunting algorithms. You need parentheses to clarify things. Okay? Concrete syntax, and that's the point of it, is to let people do a lot of things that you don't want them to. Like, it gives you freedom. But when you reason about things, you don't want to have this ambiguity crop up when you're writing your proofs of progress or preservation. So we turn to abstract syntax as unambiguous, right? Because everything's clearly designed. Precedence isn't an issue because it's built in. You don't, you know, you don't have infix operators. You say you might want to use uh, prefix operators or s expressions, right? And this, and I want to talk about accessibility is. Why are we still presenting mechanizations in inaccessible presentations? Right? And that's what I said. Agda is really nice in using dependent types, but I find the use, I personally find the mix fix and the, the Unicode notation too much. The lot of time I spent trying to make things unambiguous shouldn't be there. It should be clear, right? And this is why I like doing things in a true. Now, bearing in mind, I want to be very clear here that the use of Unicode and Mixfix is a developer choice, not a language choice. If you wanted to do Pilfa in ASCII, great, you can do that. But then you have to, and if you want to do uh, do uh, ASCII and all prefix, you know, basically S expressions all the way down. You can do that, but you have to make sure everything else is like that. But that's a developer choice, not a language choice. Okay, and in Idris 2, or Idris and Idris 2, then it's not a language. Uh, uh, some of it is a language choice because it is actually restricted where you can use Unicode and it's just on names and you can't really do. Mixfix. You can only have binary operators and uh, precedency or associativity levels. And to me, that makes doing things in like my way of doing things, regardless of you doing actor or address, is to you know make my mechanizations accessible by being easy to read. And to me, if you want to make things accessible with respect to the mechanization, do that. But then when you're writing your papers, then you have to keep that in mind. You know, what is the invisible assumptions that you're writing? What is, you know, and I was talking to Connor McBride many, many years ago, pre-pandemic, and he mentioned, you know, when you write your typing rules, you have a, a systematic, was a systematic, um, right, you have basically system, like variables in your typing judgments which are part of the formalism, but they're important. You know, make things explicit. Don't, you know, make sure everything's introduced. You know, don't make things above, uh, thin air. If you have, say, you know, you have your typing judgments, right? Then if you have things like labels, make a note of, you know, what do you expect a label to be? You know, what is a label in your language? So if you're doing, when we talk about some types and record types, uh, in languages, you know, we sort of, um, we might gloss over what a label is. Well, if you know it, then it's quite simple. But if you don't know it, then, it, you know, well, how does that label translate to a real language, right? Should it be, you know, and we know that with labels, they're bindings, they can, you know, they're bound, they're, they're names in your language, but then do they need to be? 
And yes, they do. But then what if you don't know this trick? And maybe it's because I'm not reading the right things, but. So question, like, I think the, a big, a big part of the issue is that many of the venues that we publish PL work, we have, we have a, a number of page that we have to go through and we're yes. trying to, you know, like be a little more leave behind some things that should be considered obvious. And another, another thing too, is that, you know, like the, the publications are not in a vacuum, right? We are building upon other publications and we can kind of like assume that, okay, we are inserted in this particular thing here and things that are built there kind of is still valid now. Um, how do you see that? That is a very good question, right? Because when you have your papers, you're presenting a snapshot of your work at the time. And how do you make that accessible? How do you make that long-lived? And this comes up to another interest of mine, which is research artifacts, because it links into that. Because I think we should, when, when we submit a paper, there should be a accompanying research artifact for it. In the past, those were the appendices that gave you all the full proofs that were written by hand. Nowadays, uh, artifacts are reproducible and they can be mechanized or be bits of code. And it's quite open to what an artifact is. And because then you can say, look, we are going to go over this bits and pieces, but the rest of the material will be in the artifact that's associated with it. Uh, Stephanie Weirich had a paper at ETAPS last year. Well, not her paper. It was her, I think, PhD student's paper. So let's credit where credit's due is to the PhD student. <laughs> I've forgotten the name. Uh, it was on the, dependent, uh, on the dependency calculus or something along those lines. Anyway, regardless, they did a wonderful thing I was saying, right, here's my theory. We're going to show you snippets of it. We've got, but we've mechanized it. And they had footnotes galore in that paper saying, see this theorem here? See this definition? It's this file. It's in this file in the cock code. And so what they've done is saying, look, we're presenting to you this, uh, this formalism. There's no code or act of code, you know, we're going back to our roots of presenting things with mathematical notation, but we're linking it to the mechanization where we explain greater details. You know, we're giving you everything you need. And if we have these little lemmas that we don't give proofs for, we say, well, actually the proofs are in the mechanization. And with good research artifacts, we can do that. We can say, look, you know, your paper, um, your research output is not just the paper, it's also the artifact it can also be the artifact alongside it that says helps provide more evidence to what you're doing. Now, I was very fortunate enough to be part of the A plus 22 artifact committee as co-chair. And shout out to our Peter Dutta from the National University of Singapore, who was co-chair, who did a lot of work on it as well. And one of the things we talked about is what, you know, and so this goal goes to a, a current trend that we're seeing more and more artifacts being associated with our submitted papers. I think that is quite healthy because it means put your money where your mouth is. And so if you have 
this theory and so my ECUT paper that I'm presenting in a couple of weeks is saying it's all theoretical in the paper but there's a section that says oh by the way I didn't in Idris 2 I've got mechanization the artifact is the mechanization that is the supporting evidence and the artifact evaluation committee provides a set of eyes who can look at the mechanization saying actually is what they did you know it's does it correspond to what they said in the paper okay but we have to remember that artifacts and some people disagree with this. Some people see artifacts as code reuse, as software, they have the software developer mindset. So, right, if I want to build off uh, this work that we mentioned that was by uh, Stephanie and her student, then some people say, right, I should be able to go to the GitHub, to the Git repo, clone it, and work with it. And I go, that's fair enough. But what if it's 10 years down the line? What if it's 20 years down the line? What if it's 30 years down the line? And you download that same re repository and the same co code base and it hasn't been worked on for, for 20, 30 years or, or however long, is it still guaranteed to work? Okay, is it? It's not, right? You can say, well, what about using Docker? And go, well, what if Docker's not around? What if a dependency you uh, rely on is no longer available and you have to bring in outside dependencies? You know, you're not providing a self-contained thing, okay? Now, my thoughts as somebody running an artifact evaluation committee was, right, I remember <laughs> to when I was watching Indiana Jones, when I was a young boy, right, and there's that scene on the ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, or was it the Pacific Ocean? I don't remember what. And the character Indiana Jones has this crucifix of a, from a conquistador, uh, and there was somebody stealing it and he goes it belongs in a museum <laughs> right uh if you're familiar with the scene readers you know it, it's quite a iconic scene but for me the, the most iconic thing was it belongs in a museum and the point was, you don't hoard knowledge you make it accessible and the reason I, uh, you know i wanted to stress that is because museums display artifacts there are people in the museum, librarians, curators, whose job it is to curate the artifact, to make it accessible to people down the line, right? Science will tell you how to build, how to clone a T-Rex from amber. Philosophers and artists will say, that's a bad idea. But what they can also say is, well, if you're gonna do it, you want to preserve it for prosperity, let's talk about curation. And they say, and this is the cool thing, right? So if our artifacts are in a museum or a library, uh, what we can now say is, right, if it's in a well-curated format, 30 years down the line, somebody can come along and say, look, I want to use this piece of code from 30 years ago, you know, and I want it to run. And the librarian goes, right, here's, your, here's the setup that allows you to do that, right? We as scientists, should be amenable to that saying look we will for prosperity uh, for uh, we will preserve our snapshots of our research that we present at conferences in a way that makes it reproducible not tomorrow but 30 down 30 years down the line for people who are interested in it but what we should also do is make make it accessible for those who are interested in it now and this is where the tension I see coming in with artifacts is that it's a lot of work to build artifacts, right? 
it is a lot of work to build it. But we and also decide what sort of artifact do you want to build? If you've got a hardware thing or you're talking about performance, what does that artifact look like? And I think we're still not there yet in providing good guidance on people who are not for people who are not doing programming language, uh, theoretical work mechanization or bits of software. For those who are, say, doing distributed systems, those doing hardware, right? You can't package that up as a software bundle that makes the things easy accessible. You might need hard, and that, by hard, I mean physical machines to say, look, my research works on this specific uh, GPU, it works on this design environment, it works on this specific hardware. We don't have guidelines for that. But what we do have uh, maturing is, you know, like if you want to package up, say, your mechanization or your software, how to do that in a way that is both reproducible 30 years down the line, but also accessible to those who want to extend it now. All right. And I don't think all artifact committees do it the same way, which is wrong. What we really need is a council of NACIA, or just a, a meeting of all people in PL who are interested in artifact evaluation to sort of go back and rethink what, and re-examine what we are doing. They did it many years ago. Um, Jan Vitek, Christopher Murphy from Brown, uh, Jan Vitek from uh, Northeastern, they set some guidelines, but nobody's really revisited revisited that set of guidelines to update it for what we've known now for the last 10, 15 years. We haven't created even the guidelines? We do. There are, well, the thing is, it's it's mismatch, right? You've got, there's some, there's artifactival.org, which has some guidelines, but there's nothing really, I would but it hasn't been, that's the point, it hasn't been touched for a long time. It hasn't been refreshed with what we know now about doing artifacts. And that is something we need to change. We need to periodically revisit how we do artifacts so that we are on top of trends, we're on top of what everyone else is doing. You know, that especially for communities who are, say, outside SIGPLANT, right? And if they want to do artifacts, you know, and some, and I didn't realize this in that, you know, if you're in SIGPLAN, you get access to the badges and the artwork for it. But if you want to do something else, you have to do fundamentally distinct because of copyright, right? Can we do something a bit better and you know, more copy left on saying making badges uh, that are shared by communities and the guidelines for that? Can we come as a community together to do this single, you know, not a single, but just like, let's talk. Right. Let's have a design by committee, whatever you want to do, but just every so often revisit how we do artifacts from what we've learned over the last five years or 10 years. Right. You know, let's have our five year plan, because if we don't, people won't take artifacts seriously enough, especially if they're cumbersome to use, cumbersome to package. Right. And for things like mechanization and the PL work that I do, we've got it down to a fine art. Right. Mm -hmm. In my projects. There is a make file, because I still use make. It's wonderful uh, to build my address projects. But we have a target called make artifact, right? And you can go from having, uh, for each per project, because of the tooling we've used and the infrastructure we've developed, that we can go from zero to artifact in about 10 minutes, right? And that's for the virtual machine provision. There's documentation that needs happening, but a lot of it, I'll, I'll be honest, I have templates because 90% of the time, the instructions for how to build and deploy Idris software or that is the same. 
Or if you want to build browsable source code, well, we've got tooling to do that. If you want to build your documentation, we have documentation generators for that. If you want to do the tutorial, that's where you can spend effort. Right? But there's a whole lot of low-hanging fruit that we can automate to make building artifacts. And I don't just mean building the virtual machines. I mean getting a copy of the source code, putting it into an archive, getting all the dependencies, making things standalone. You know, we can automate all these things to make artifacts a lot, little bit more easier to do, but with high quality. I really like I really like those point of views, and I think they're very very important. Even more because, in a way, I feel that when we are submitting papers nowadays, often enough we put it, and and by we I usually mean the PhD students are putting a lot of effort into mechanizing whatever is in the paper, right? But mm -hmm. once we are writing down the paper and we are submitting, there's like the the reviewers are not that so interested in the artifact that much, you know, like even though these things that you're, that you're mentioning that, yeah. that uh, it's really nice and very important and like really gives you this um, heavy insight that things that are seen, I'm saying in the, in the paper are actually correct. And here is my code to show it. Right. So I, I definitely understand. And I feel that if we put more, a better, a better guideline and, you know, like have a better set of reasons on how to deal with artifacts, we can, give them the proper weight they deserve and they should have in our field. No, absolutely. I agree with you. It's, uh, and I don't think we're far from that. I'm quite hopeful in this. Um, this will show off my British heritage. So there's a famous joke by, oh word, not the two Ronnies, uh, Morecambe and Wise. There are very famous uh, comedians from the 70s, right? And there's a very famous sketch with a famous pianist called Andre Previn. And it's about playing music. And Andre Previn uh, got the comedic timing quite great. But the whole point is Andre Previn was playing this wonderful uh, piano piece. And Morecambe, one of the things, was just doing blah, 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 blah. And the joke was, uh, Prevention needs to play all the right notes. And Morecambe went, well, it's the right notes, but the wrong order. <laughs> uh, so for people, please do uh, look up. It's, it's one of the classic British comedy. But the whole point there to, related to the artifact is that I'm not saying it's dire. I'm saying we've got all the right pieces around, but they're not in the right order. They're not, you know, we, have, we need to sit down and think about this. How can we, how can we be better as a community to make things, you know, you know, we can segue on to looking about, you know, how do we form our committees for this? What can we learn about it? And how can that help us wider? Because artifact uh, evaluation committees are a bit ahead of the times compared to the regular research paper committees on how they're formed. Right. Before we continue, yeah. how about we take a short break and go into that? Please. <laughs> All, right. All right. We are back to talk about, about community and and reviewing and discuss positively discussing research. Where do you wanna you wanna start with here? We already talked about reproducible research and artifacts. Yep. Uh, so maybe we start on like we can talk about reviewing, okay? All right. Because we talk about success in terms of papers, and we don't often talk about well, some people do, right? Uh, they talk about your rejections and how shit 
it can make you feel when somebody's rejected your work. And you look at it and you go, well, what's happened here? Because put, everyone puts lots of effort in their papers and we need to acknowledge that. Some people, you get the odd paper that it's clear that that's not what happened. But the majority, you know, if you submit something for publication at the big venues, you put a lot of work into it. And I think it's only fair then if that paper gets reviewed, it gets a good review. I'm not talking about a positive review, but I'm talking about it is a professional review that looks at the paper and gives a good verdict on the paper and the decision is just and sound. Okay, but we've all been on the end of reviewer two that basically says, this is not a good paper, I wouldn't have done it like this. And that's heartbreaking because, you know, what's, you know, and they might not even explain why, and they'll just tank your paper. And I think what I want to say about this is uh, hope is what I feel is being changed, changing and should change, but it's still there in our communities. And I've not served on a program committee for a while. I've been quite fortunate that when I have been selected to serve, it's through essentially grace and favor, not through nomination. So an artifact evaluation committees, it's all done by nominations. That's the leading part of what they do where they're ahead of the curve and that it's you form your committee by nominations, but on standard committees you're not. And I remember being on these committees I've been on and you basically depending on who's the program director, you sometimes you get in depth uh, instructions on how to review and you'll get pointers on how to review certain types of paper. But it's inconsistent and but still, there's this notion of, right, a bad review is one that somebody will look at it and, uh, like, the author will look at it or uh, the rebuttal process will look at it and, and actually not get why it's being rejected. It sounds like the reviewer is out to get someone, and that's wrong, okay? What the review should do, and we all know this, but still people do it, what or still don't do it, and that what a review should do is basically critically appraise your work and tell in, a, in such a way that is you understand why it's not being accepted. You understand why it's accepted, but you might be a little bit hurt from it, but it's not going to put you on a downward spiral. So a good, so, and I want to make this clear, when I talk about a good review, I don't talk about getting ace if that's what the conference uses. I mean, it's getting a result that makes you say, ah, I get it. I see it. I see what's happening here. But we need to be better at that. I think we need to have more consistency in that and, you know, have a bit more ways of having a bit more meta reviews to sort of keep reviewers on task so to remind them that, you know, you need to do a proper review. We need to be maybe a bit more transparent. And I don't know precisely how we can do that nicely and efficiently because we're getting more and more papers submitted to conferences and more people and less people are doing reviewing. But we need to make sure that the reviewers are able to do these good reviews in the time allotted to them. And I want to highlight, there's a really nice SIGPLAN blog article from Peter Sewell on good and bad reasons to reject a paper. Actually, the title is Bad Reasons to Reject Good Papers and Vice Versa. And he enumerates these reasons of what's a bad reason to reject a paper and what's a good reason to reject a paper. 
And whenever I write a review or I read a review to my paper, I always bring this up to look at it and say, look, can I match what's being said here to one of these reasons? And that helps me feel better of saying, look, this was a, a bad review because it's a bad reason to reject the paper, right? But I shouldn't have to do that. It should be all, I should be reading it and saying, actually, this is a good reason. I understand it. It sucks, right? It doesn't make my day well, but like, you know, a week down the line, it's a good reason. You know, you're given a good reason. And I can, we can, you know, I urge people to, if they're doing reviewing, is to look at that blog post and read it. If you're a PC chair, is to start providing good documentation for your viewers that could be passed around from each iteration of your conference, like the call for papers of saying, here are the guys. We're starting to see this now. I'm not going to say we don't do this at the moment. As I said, there are some guidelines for uh, things experimental work that like, is easily accessible. But I think just to be a bit more uh, consistent as a community of saying, look, if you want to write a review, here is how you do it in such a way that it's good. That you can understand, so that the reader can understand why it's being rejected and not just because you didn't like it or you think there's something fundamentally wrong but don't necessarily agree with it. You know something that makes me makes me wonder if we're not trying to tackle the the, the problem that we shouldn't have in first place because I feel sometimes I feel that it's it's very weird that computer science is one of the few sciences that uses conference as the model of publication. Whereas yes. when we have a journal publication, we are working with the reviewer, not against the reviewer in the sense that we are going, you know, like it's not going to be, he's going to give his review and it's either rejected or, or approved, but they will give you some guidelines. Hey, these are some things that I would like to change, you know, and yeah, I suppose no, so with that. That, Maybe. that, you know, you're you're right there, and I think that some of the conference models we're seeing that with the multiple rounds per year, yeah, and that you will get a second choice. But I think there's a lot uh, more to be learned here. Uh, so one concept that's quite interesting uh, I haven't seen played at large is that of shepherding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so shepherding is when a lead reviewer will then you know, after the decision's been made and if it's un and unless it's sorry, if the decision's been made and it's a conditional, then the shepherd will work with you to get into a shape that turns it from conditional to accepted. And that's quite interesting in terms of trying to get the paper. But still that can be quite biased and what's the shepherd you know, what does the shepherd think is a good way to improve the paper? And some people could argue that isn't the job of the reviewing community. And we should, and you know, it's because you're adding in sort of bias there and do the shepherds become, and the work of a shepherd can be quite hard, but they also can be quite useful in getting works and feedback. But you could also argue, and I, and I tend to agree with this more, even though shepherding sounds like a nice idea, in that it's not the job of the reviewer to actively make, they're a passive observer of the paper. The job is to review it and say, look, objectively, this is what's, going this is what you you know we think are the weaknesses that make it unpublished you know it shouldn't be published or this is what you need to strengthen for it to become publishable but then you get this memory uh loss of right 
you write for one conference, they reject it. You write to another conference, they reject it. And to a third one, they reject it. To a fourth one, they reject it. And each time it's different reviewers. We're about three years in this process already. Yeah. Yeah, three years in the process. And each review says, you know, we'll contradict each other. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and that's it. And so, so this is the thing. If you want to improve reviewing, then we need to improve consistency in it. And it's quite a hard thing to solve. And I don't know actively how to solve it. Aside from thinking that it needs, we need to address it. You know, yeah. how you know, can a PC be internally consistent? Okay, I yeah, and I've got direct experience of that. I'm not going to delve into it too much because it's still quite fresh in my mind. But you know, <laughs> I had uh, I submitted two papers to a conference. One accepted, one rejected. Very similar papers in terms of we used a solution to solve the same ish solution to solve two different problems which you know and we got chastised a little bit because the committee was saying uh, they thought it was the uh sorry the same problem with two different solutions uh, uh, sorry i i forget the details but the whole point was that they misunderstood what we were doing but the whole point is the reviewers the two sets of reviewers for the two papers had two completely different viewpoints on the solution which was more or less you know the same idea one says mm-hmm. it was fundamentally wrong the other said it was fundamentally right <laughs> even though it was attacking two different but related problems they're sufficiently different you could get two papers out of it. i'm not salami slicing here i'm just saying look mm-hmm. there were two you know basically you're at two different ends of abstraction but the point is you know your pc was to me my impression was it was internally inconsistent Right. Yeah. So you had the same PC, same PC, saying, you know, two papers that are obviously related, and one saying the solution is wrong, the other one saying for another paper the same solution was right. And by solution, I mean the technique. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like saying you use quantitative typing to solve, uh, like some functional languages, and you use another one in, say, an orchestration language. Right. But they're def- you know like so the two different problems and that's right and we need to try and provide that and it's a hard thing right because as uh, commit as conferences grow in terms of submissions what can we do to do that and this is these are open questions there's no I've got I'm too junior enough to know what's the best way to do it and there's things I probably haven't thought about but you can sort of see this as community as a hey a heads up you know we need to be better at how we review papers to make sure that things don't go wrong and that you get you know that papers get rejected for good reasons and not for bad reasons you know one thing one thing that that i've been thinking about is that i feel that one of the problems about reviewing is that i cannot i'm not 100 sure about this because i'm not a professor but i have a feeling that service is not properly rewarded in their career in the sense no. of a professor has, you know, like a professor has so many different tasks at hand. They have to mentor their students. They have their meetings. They have to, you know, like hire new professors. They have to do exams and do the classes and all of that. And service is, in my point of view, pretty much the last thing in line in terms of importance for things that will yeah. keep them alive in academia for tomorrow, right? <laughs> So yeah. they don't have enough time to even do the reviewing. Right. right? And so here's, a, here's the other 
thing to add to this, right? It's now you look at the the committees for ICFP for the last five iterations, for the Popol last five iterations, you name it, five iterations ago, and you look at the variety of those who are serving on the committee. Right. And by that, I mean, it's the same faces, more or less. You get some yeah. new people yeah. bubbling up coming up and it's the same faces. So whenever yeah. I hear somebody complain, oh, I've got so much reviewing to do. And I go, well, as a research associate, I go, hello, I'm here. I can serve <laughs> on your committee. I can do reviewing. And it doesn't happen because you don't get chosen. Right? And, we have to, and so if you want to look about, if you want to make the... Um, Make the claim, and I don't think we are doing it here. Saying you get bad reviews because reviews don't have enough time. It, it certainly does impact, but it's not the be all and end all of why people give shit reviews. But we want to look at reviewer load. It's more papers, not an increase in reviewers. We see that at universities in terms of student numbers. Mm -hmm. Too many mm -hmm. students for the numbers we have, and so some committees they ext we've seen this. If you look at it, this is like. A, I feel like most of this podcast is more of a commentary on PL uh, as a community, but that's fine. We'll, we'll de we're definitely planning to go back to the uh, technical details uh, yeah. later on. But the whole point is, it's right. How are we forming our committees to make sure that they can take on the load that is being presented in terms of numbers? We're hearing about record numbers of submissions record numbers of rejection you know I, I say record numbers but you know a lot more papers are being submitted yep, yep. a lot of them and you still need people to review them and we want to talk about service so how can we get a committee and grow our community to have the ability to review these papers for the conferences right regardless of journal because a lot of conferences are now going for this uh, multiple round and that's fine but how can we ensure that our committees are growing that people aren't that you know, faculty are not burning out from the review load, as well as teaching load, as well as other service load. Because it's a lot of energy and effort to be a PC chair. Mm -hmm. You hear this from everyone saying people get burnt out, as I said, like after they've done their intense, like, you know, PC meetings, be it uh, asynchronous, synchronous, whatever, they just want to say, like, I'm going on holiday for two weeks, do not contact me, right? Mm hmm. And even same with people like like uh, standard um, committee members, you know. How can we grow a committee? How can we grow the community so it's not just the same faces each time? So how are they and, chosen to begin with? Which so I think those choice. And I think this is the thing. It's basically, unless you know the answer, you won't necessarily get this. And this is a bit about uh, epistemic injustice, right? Unless you've known someone who's really active into the service, you might not necessarily get or be able to know where to look out for the information. So my understanding of the current trend, it's a grace and favor approach, which is it is by nomination. So the PC chair gets together and they have certain requirements in terms of who or what sort of person can and cannot serve on a committee. And they then go out and find people to serve. And so that's why I call it grace and favor in that the PC chair has to find people. They have to add, it's not advertising, it's basically they will email people, like they, they might have a good idea of how to get 
a good balance across the PL community for the conference they're uh, forming a committee for, and not just about topic balance, but say gender balance, maybe uh, ethnic, uh, not necessarily ethnic balance, but you know, a good uh, EDI, uh, equality, diversity balance across the committee, and sometimes it's quite hard to do. Also, industry representation. They have to find people. And SIGPLAN, they have documentation. I think it's not hard to find, but just unless you know where it is, have some information on how committees should be formed. But at the end of the day, it's all by asking someone to serve. And they can say no, and they can accept. Or they can say, look, here's this person. So the reason I got my uh, uh, service badges for serving on IFL and A plus committees is because in one, the person that was asked said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm too busy. By the way, here's somebody else who could do it. And the other one I was asked directly, but I don't know how I was chosen. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can sort of see why, because, you know, I'm a postdoc. Uh, I was a researcher. I am a research associate. I've got the skills to do it. But then yeah. somebody had to choose me. And I only got my uh, uh, co-chair of a plus artifact evaluation committee is because i did service on other artifact evaluation committees and a previous artifact evaluation chair said oh look this person seemed to be quite interested in doing artifact evaluations let's you know do the peter principle and promote them to the level of incompetence and actually run it for a change and so that you know and that's how you might get known it's like uh, sorry and this is going back to how committees form well yeah they ask you but then why should you know uh and that is that might have been fine, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago, whatever. But now the community is so vast is are people being yeah. missed out? Yeah. And then that that's the that's the key question is if you just ask around, you might get suggestion of here's this talented PhD student or sorry, talented research associate who or newly uh minted associate or assistant professor who had about three or four popple papers or whatever, like, you know, whatever, you know, right. Choose them, they look good, and that's okay. But then what about the person who is just equally as knowledgeable, might not be as well known as from, a say, a more is not part of the main PL community yep. just because of location? Yep. How do they get chosen? And they don't, yeah. because they get yeah. forgotten about. And I've got a lovely anecdote about it. So during COVID, PLDI twenty. 20 was virtually in London last minute and it was great because it democratized access to big wig PL people because it was all on Slack and so on and I remember uh, learning about how the Kai community said Kai the human computer or computer human interaction uh, said right they have call for nominations for or at least at the time and I hope they still do, is call for nominations for forming their PCs. That's really cool. And this was 2020. Artifact evaluation committees, for years, have call for nominations. We did yep. a call for nominations saying, look, if you want to be part of the committee, and I've seen this before, if you want to be part, sign up. And I think that's yep. great, because if you spam all the mailing lists, someone will say, oh my god, I can do this. I don't have to be asked. I can apply for it. If I don't get yep. chosen, that's fine. But I have had the opportunity to apply for it. But we don't see the same about PCs. And so uh, the reason why I mentioned PLD, PLD, because I was in a chat with, um, you know, 
Benjamin Pierce, you know. Uh, but the whole point is that if you're doing online, it's the, the Pac-Man situation but, uh, uh, all the time. And the Pac-Man is, if you're standing in the hallway track, hallway track is best track, always leave a gap in your circle for somebody to come in. And if somebody mm-hmm. comes in, stop making a gap. And on online, that gap is permanently there because anyone can pop. And I said, look, I've heard about this Kai community. Can we make these changes to make people who are, say, on the edge of the PL community have opportunities for service? Right? We're talking about opportunities, not guarantees. And Benjamin Pierce on Slack just said, oh, email Jens Paulsberg. So at the time, Jens Paulsberg was the SIGPLAN chair. And I love this anecdote because, you know, some of the time I would feel nervous emailing somebody like Jens because this is the chair of SIGPLAN. I'm just a research associate. Can I make a change? And will I be listened to? And that's your fear. If you're coming from outside, will you be listened to? And so I emailed Jens Paulsberg, and I said, here's this wonderful idea. Can we do this? And he gave me some good pushback, making me aware of things I wasn't aware of. So like committee formation, how they have to get the balance and ratios right for certain things, which is fair enough. Right. But I said, right. Okay. That's great. I'm quite junior. I was more or less a a, a newish parent. Uh, at we the don't time. understand and, all the all the depth of the problem, and we have big dreams, and we want to change things, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I linked uh, Jens in with members of the guy community who's responsible for PC church. Look, like, right, I can't do this, but I want to do the introduction so that you know we can try and do community knowledge transfer, get get community who knows what they're doing with us, and give feedback to hopefully influence how SIGPLAN does it. And I left it alone, and I regret that, not trying to push it, because my regret is, well, could I have had a long-lasting effect on SIGPLAN if I pushed it? I, and that is an open, you know, de- uh, democratizing you know, uh, how committees are formed by making them more open, right? But I didn't, and you, know, you can't look back in anger, right? But what was really nice about this tidbit is next year PL, PLDI 21, there's a tweet by, uh, right, I'm going to butcher your name, I'm very sorry, not Pedro's name, but uh, Isil Dilig from the University of is it Texas or is it Austin, Texas? Anyway, uh, she was program chair for PLDI 22. And you know, it's a wonderful thing she did. She opened up the nominations for the committee so that she had a Google form saying, if you want to be part of the PLDI program committee, apply, right? You can self-nominate. You have to give some uh, uh, bona fides uh, to make sure you're not just some crank. Well, mm-hmm. half of our community are cranks. But, <laughs> but when I, and I saw this and I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Did my talk with Jens Paulberg have some effect? And I don't think it was. I think it's just, uh, you know, as most things, it's just coincidence. I just, I loved seeing that, you know, just like, you know, yep. someday had the gumption to say, let's open it up. But I don't think any other conference has done that in the PL community since then. And I want to be corrected. If I'm wrong, please tell me, because opening PCs for nominations uh, so that you can apply to serve is wonderful, because I think that is makes it accessible for those who say who are not known, who will never get asked because you just you know, you're at some random university in Europe, America, you know, not even those, like everyone knows them, but, you know, Latin America, yeah. Africa, you know, that. 
you know, um, Oceania, the Indonesia, you know, the, all those states there, you know, can we, you know, bring these people who actually might know quite a lot of stuff and bring spirit, but also opening up the, you know, uh, providing new faces, new insights that we can then like train up, we can do these things. And that was great. And in the last couple of days, what we saw on social media is a call by, uh, or the beginnings, what I hopefully is the right call of um, John, uh, and yeah, I'm going to mispronounce it, uh, Regar, who I, in my head, know as the cat professor from Utah, uh, who is the PC chair for PLDI 23, is looking to do the same thing. As saying, look, I want a call of nominations. You Unfortunately, you need to have had a PhD awarded by November 23. Apparently, these are state plan regulations, which is fair enough. I'm not going to mm-hmm. question those, but that's cool. So that's twice in, or is it PLDI 20, or PLDI 24, sorry, because we've already had PLDI 23. So that's the, you know, that's twice for a top SIG plan conference of service by self-nomination. Now you can apply to serve. And that's cool, right? So that means now that if I wanted to serve, I don't have to say, look, sit in my chair and say, look, will the cat professor from Utah ask me to serve? Or will somebody he asks say, no, I'm not doing it, choose young. Right? I can go up to him and say, hi, I'm here. <laughs> uh, you know, if I look good, select me. And if not, that's fine. But I had a chance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's and I think that that's the only thing we can do with our community. If we want to grow the number of reviewers, if you want to, tr- and if you were worried about caliber, because somebody might say, well, we go for people who've submitted and have been published, they have the right caliber to be a reviewer. And I go, well, no, that's not true because yes, they know what to do for the community, but that can also be an inherent knowledge. You know, they know that it has to be this type of paper. They need to say, put a graph in if it's PLDI. And that's you know, and they know the right people who tell them that. But if you're from outside, then let's train them up. You know, sometimes sometimes I feel I feel that our you know like PL academia, maybe academia in general, but PL academia in particular, I feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm quite pessimistic here. But sometimes it feels like it's a crumbling castle that we're just trying to keep up. And the worst part is that yeah. many, many of those things we are not trained to do. Many of those things that are our job as a, a PhD student and after you graduate, you don't learn. For example, there is no formal training in my university, at least in my friends' universities, about write, writing a paper, you know, like writing a paper in PL. There's no formal training in giving reviews. There is no formal yeah. training in, you know, like actually putting effort in the science behind how to build the community and how to build the yeah. community chair and things like that. So everything we do, it seems like it's somehow ad hoc, right? Like we're not actually putting the effort to think yeah. and no, no. to train people into this. And that's a big I, part of the problem too, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. You're, you're spot on the money there with that. It's because... A lot of it is by osmosis and community right. self-selection. And I'm not saying that the people who are chosen will be bad. It's just they were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And and my, my biggest gripe is I know a few people who just know, who you know, they did their PhD at the right institution to know the right person. And the right person wanted to say, I don't want to do this role. I'll hand it off to this other person who is capable. And But that means, well, I could have done that role. And I'm not saying that's precisely what happened to me, but I'm just saying, like, but it's more about what I would like to see as a community is saying, can we 
open up the opportunities for service, the recording of institutional knowledge and making it a bit more, uh, just making it better so that people learn to how to write, learn how to review, be a bit more systemic in that. And mm -hmm. things like the Programming Language Mentors Workshop is really great at that, but that's still a closed uh, group, right? It's still very short, too. I cannot short, go right? learn how to write a paper in one, two hours, right? No, but but I think one of the, and I think uh, one of the things that I would love to see happen, and I don't know if it will, is to make, and I love the notion, and so there's this call from the SIG Arch community on how to revisit how they do conferences, like Jeff Foster, mm, yeah. uh, the Milner was he Milner Award this year? Older. Uh, there's some. He had this big accolade for being the young Milner Researcher of the Year, and well done, congratulations for him on that. And part of the call they sort of said is like trying to flip the the conference so that the conference is more about what you do in person, but uh, a lot of the rest of it is asynchronous. So uh, mm -hmm. review, uh, mm -hmm. look, reading papers, watching presentations, things like that you make the conference good for being in person, but you still want to celebrate people getting accepted, getting a paper accepted. Uh, and so read the call. I, I would suggest that for everyone. But the whole point I was making about that is with PL Mentors Workshop is, right, there's lots of things you can do well when you're in a group doing small group teaching. We all love mm -hmm. small group teaching. It, it's done. But I love the notion of flipped classrooms. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about here at PLMW is that if you can get Ranjit Jala of San Diego, Santa Cruz, of uh, his talk and presentations, it's really nice. Mm -hmm. Derek Dreyer's talking how to write, it's really nice, yep. but they have to give mm -hmm. it year in, year out. And I go, yep. well, fuck that. Don't do that. It's a waste of your fucking time. Let's flip it. Let's turn it into a MOOC. Let's make it available to all so that then when you do your workshops, you can do more concentrated effort of not saying, watch this presentation and be like, Right, let's go over somebody's writing and let them improve it. Let's do more yeah. teaching things. Yeah. And I would love to be able to do all this. I'd love to be able to influence the community. But at the end of the day, I don't know who to ask and try and get involved because it's hard. You know, is there an opportunity to apply for saying PLMW, you know, workshop organizer? If you want to be a social chair of PLDI or whatever, how do you apply for this? <laughs> right? Uh, but this goes back to, yeah, and this goes back to the whole, uh, you know, like, we can improve the community, but we need to rethink of how we're doing things. And I know, oh, yeah. um, and this is the thing, this is my gripe, is that I want to, you know, if people like, I'm I'm, I'm certain because I am not, uh, you know, I'm smart, but I'm certainly not the only one who has have these ideas, but why aren't they bubbling up, right? Why aren't we rethinking, being really crazy on thinking like, what if we make PMW like a MOOC or something like that or whatever, just to sort of flip it so that we can open up how to do things. So like Benjamin Pierce recently released a course on writing that he does locally at oh, yeah. uh, Penn. Penn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, at Penn. And that was great because that's we're now starting opening up knowledge. We're opening up open, you know, effectively open textbooks. You know, Software Foundations is an open text, but, you know, Pelfa is an openish textbook you know and when we talk about skills and how to review skills and how to write skills on x y and z well the knowledge is there it's just it needs to be open yeah yeah
and that's and that's it. And but this goes on to you know how to make servers more penetrable is it's hard for people to break through. I think in the way it is, I would love to have had more service opportunities, but if and it's hard. It really annoys me because I think there's so many good people who will be great at this community, but they just can't push through, and so they have to leave. Like, or you know, or the people who do, and you get this like jealous or envious or jealous, um, saying people who do get who do good things in the community, but because they were in the right place at the right time, they got the ear of the right person. And I think, well, we shouldn't. That shouldn't be the case. It's wonderful the impact that that person has had, but you know, what about the person who wasn't listened to? Who wasn't able to follow through on the ideas you could have had a similar impact but because the community didn't just say or they didn't have a champion so here's my yeah. promise <laughs> i am your champion this podcast is for you if you think you don't have a voice contact me let's talk come here this is what i'm here for i'm giving voices Absolutely. for people so um i think i think we are we are good on time for today and we are yep. come back tomorrow and yep. is there any any final thoughts any you know like final remarks you would like to mention before we come uh, back tomorrow yeah uh, so a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is not necessarily being about pl it's been about the community but that i think we need to be more open and vocal about this because i'm sick and tired of people complaining about reviewer 2 but as a community not seeing more actions on addressing the reviewer 2 because the reviewer 2 is not some abstract figure from another university it is the community the community is its own reviewer 2 and unless we make the changes we're going to see it become more of a hierarchy and i think more of a closed system and we need to be a bit more open about things and a lot of the stuff i'm saying and sometimes i can be a lot more vocal than i need to be and sometimes i can put my foot in it and i don't like to think that i know all the answers but I, what i would like to see is community seeing a bit more receptive and it could be that this might become the peter principle and somebody might say we've got this lovely service opportunity for you because you've been complaining so much about it and i'll fail but I don't want it to be this. I want to say, look, can we make, I, you know, it's a campsite rule or the campfire rule, right? Leave the place better than you left it. Right. And hopefully if I'm making these chimes to people and saying, or to community and people are listening, saying, look, and the right person says, let's change it. And say, look, don't involve me because I'm making all this noise. Involve me so we can get other people to contribute. It's not about me. Right, I wish my career would have been a bit better. I wish my papers had been accepted. I wish I had more opportunities. That's that's uh, understated. But what I want is for the community to be more open and receptive, because we know it can be. That's thing we know it can be, and it's you know there's a little bit of JFK's. Don't ask what you can do for your country. Ask what your country can do for you. Right, that's the you know that's the GFK speech, right? Uh, and I would like to change, and I would like to see the community change. So like, like, what can we do as a community, not just to benefit somebody like myself, but to people who are coming through the pipeline who might not necessarily have the same opportunities. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Let's let's be the change we want to see in the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Absolutely.
Alright, that was it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Don't forget that this was just the first half. The next half is going to come out next week or something. I don't know. As I mentioned the beginning of the episode, don't forget to check our Discord server. You can find the link in the website, typetheoryforall.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave in the website. You can send an email, typetheoryforall at gmail. Follow us at Twitter, at TTforall, and do all those things. I love you guys. I love you guys as listeners. I hope you guys are still enjoying the show. And I have big plans to keep growing. So let's get into it. Or get out of it. I don't know. What do I usually say when I when I finish? I forgot. That's it. <laughs>